when I looked at the readiness slide for the United States Air Force in 2019, I actually thought they had gotten the labels reversed because I knew that any unit that had gotten below 80% readiness in 3rd Air Force during the Cold War, the commander would be changed. And yet our readiness had declined substantially. 28 years of continuous combat operations had eroded the readiness of the force to meet any fight, any time. Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. On this episode, Josh and I spoke to President Heather Wilson of the University of Texas, El Paso. We talked to her about growing up as the granddaughter and daughter of barnstorming pilots, about her career in the armed services and in Congress, and about her vision and mission for higher education at UTEP. We hope you enjoy the conversation. President Heather Wilson, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. I wanted to start, I think, at the logical starting place, which is your childhood. I understand that you came from flying family. So uh, for those who might not be familiar with your background, I wonder if you could just talk about how your early interest in being a pilot was formed. Sure. My grandfather and my father were both aviators. My grandfather was one of the first aviators in the RAF in 1918, the Royal Air Force. After the war, he came to America. There wasn't any work in Scotland, and so he was an immigrant to America. And my grandmother came here to marry him, also from Scotland. And uh, he became a barnstormer. And then in the in the Second World War, he flew for his new country, the United States, and he was a career pilot around New England and ferried aircraft parts and did those kind of things. And then uh, my dad started flying as a kid at the airport where my grandfather was the ran the airport and then um, enlisted in the Air Force after high school. He was a mechanic. And then when he got out of the service, he was a commercial pilot. He married his high school sweetheart, my mom. In the 1950s, when a lot of women didn't even drive, he taught my mom how to fly. And so they they rebuilt one airplane together, and my, then my dad built an experimental open cockpit biplane inside our little 1,600-square-foot house. So I really did grow up around aviation. What exactly is a barnstormer? You used this term previously. I have a vague idea of what this is, but what exactly is a barnstormer? In the early days of aviation... People who hadn't seen an airplane before, never ridden in one, guys would take airplanes and fly around and find a farmer's field to land in. And then they had a, a barker, a guy that would fly with them, and he'd go out there and people would gather around to see this airplane that had landed in their community and they'd sell rides. Huh. My grandfather did that, flew around New England and, and would sell rides in an airplane. Amazing. So your career path was set early on then? Not entirely. You know, I grew up around aviators, but it wasn't until I was a junior in high school that they opened the service academies to women. 
I benefited from that. I was in the third class with women to go to the United States Air Force Academy. At the time, women were still not allowed to fly combat aircraft. So there were a limit. You could fly trainers and cargo. But even after I finished graduate school, that path wasn't really open to do other than cargo or trainers. I had different options as a PhD in the military and chose to just pursue aviation as a hobby rather than as my profession. And you mentioned going to graduate school. You went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and you wrote a PhD in in international relations or in history, I believe. What did you write about? It's called uh, International Law and the Use of Force by National Liberation Movements. So it was use of force mostly during the period of decolonization in the 60s and 70s in Africa. One of the through lines, and we'll talk about all the extraordinary things you've done throughout your life, is your commitment to public service. So I was wondering if there was something in your childhood or in your early life that you know, pushed you towards being a, a public servant. Certainly the academy does, and service before self is, is one of the core values of the United States Air Force. But I, I also, you know, my mother was a nurse. And for over time, when we were little, she was kind of the nurse in the village that we lived in. We lived in a very small rural area of of New Hampshire. And she always made it pretty clear to us that we had an obligation to serve others. And as she used to put it, to light our own little corner of the world. Now, I used to tell people this when I was in, in elected office. I don't know what political party my parents or grandparents were registered as. I have no idea. But I do know that when the Memorial Day parade came around and, and they walked by with the United States flag, you better get your tail up off of the sidewalk or you were going to get hauled up by the scruff of your neck. Our family served and you were respected that. And that was just part of who we were. So you mentioned that you held elected office. Tell us a little bit more about that. How is it you came to run for office? Uh, which offices did you hold and what are some of your proudest achievements during that time? It wasn't part of my life's plan, I can tell you that. I served in the military and then left the service in 1989 and served on the National Security Council staff for the first President Bush and did that for a couple of years. And then uh, we met a guy who I had met initially in the in the military. He was a JAG, a lawyer in the Air Force. We started dating each other long distance and he uh, he asked me to marry him. He was living in New Mexico, and so I was kind of a mail-order bride to Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> so I moved to New Mexico and started a small company and started getting involved in the community in a lot of different ways. And there was a change, and the new governor was elected, and I guess it was 1994, it must have been. So it was January of 95, new governor in Santa Fe, and, and he wanted somebody to run the child welfare department. And my husband and I had been foster parents together. And so we knew how screwed up the child welfare system was. And so he asked me if I thought I would serve. It was an appointed position in state government, but it was really the first kind of public leadership position where I wasn't supporting somebody else. I was actually trying to reform child welfare in New Mexico. And so one of the things I learned from that is that nuclear weapons are safer than teenagers. <laughs> so, so There's no mutually assured destruction with teenagers. There's no rational deterrence theory with teenagers. None at all. And so I was doing that. And quite unexpectedly, my predecessor in the Congress became very seriously ill. And uh, some leaders in New Mexico, it was, you know, like a week before the filing deadline, asked if I would run for Congress. And that was also not part of my life's plan. But I um, decided to do it. And uh, I ended up in a special election and ended up serving in Congress for 10 years. 
Your district, as I understand it, this was the, the first district, right, in New Mexico? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. This was um, a bit of a swing district, no? I mean, it was split between Republican and Democrat. You know, I want to ask you about kind of the politics of representing a district like that. One of the critiques you hear these days in political science and law is that, you know, we've lost districts like that, where the representative is forced to kind of moderate and appeal to various constituencies. It seems like everything's much more polarized now. There are fewer districts like yours. So I'm wondering what your experience was like representing a district like that. And then more broadly, what you think about the ways that Congress has changed and become more polarized since uh, the time you served. I think America has become more polarized. And it's a question of what's, you know, what's the cause and what's the effect. But certainly there are fewer and fewer districts that are true swing districts. And even when I was there, for most members of Congress, it's a tenured professorship, right? They only have competition in a primary. It's really almost an unholy alliance started in the South with redistricting and civil rights legislation, where if you draw lines so that there are every 10 years so that there are high percentage minority districts in the South, almost inevitably you have right next to it a very oddly shaped high percentage conservative district. And so you have more and more communities that are divided along lines that make safe seats for both Democrats and Republicans, which means the real choice is made in a primary. Even among primary voters, those who show up to vote tend to be on the edges of their own party. And so it causes a polarization. Now, I think there are other things that cause it as well, but there are, there are fewer and fewer competitive districts in America. You know, Albuquerque was one of them. And it was one of the things that I knew that my experience in public service was profoundly different um, from many of the people whom I served with. In, in what way? Why was your experience in public service so different from those you served with? Because they could make a lot more mistakes than I could. They didn't. They never had a tough election after their first one. Oh, because of the swing district factor. Yeah, some of them, and I would say this of both parties. You know, some of them went home once a year, whether they needed to or not. <laughs> they didn't have to really listen as hard. They didn't have to really work hard to serve. I'm not sure that's good for the country. And is this something that you saw getting worse during your time in Congress, perhaps something that contributed to you leaving electoral politics? Or, or was it already there when you entered the Congress in the, in the mid-90s? I think to some extent it was already there. I think it has been deepened by there is more polarization in the country. And I think there are a lot of factors that play into that. One is a greater segmentation on where we get our information from. One of the things that was interesting to me, so I inherited the database from my predecessor, inherited it from his predecessor for member of Congress for correspondence and so forth. It's a fascinating database because it went back 30 years. My predecessor did not have an email address. If you think about it, the 1996 Telecommunications Act does not mention the word internet. How we communicate changed but so did people's access to information. It changes constituents' expectations of their representatives. It also changes where they get their information from. And we unfortunately tend to get information that confirms our beliefs rather than questions them. And I worry about that. 
I wanted to ask about campaign finance. This is one of my academic interests, but you were in Congress during the passage of the McCain-Feingold bill, which, among other things, you know, eliminated soft money in Congress. So this connects in some ways with what you're saying, I think, about not only where people get their news from and who politicians are reliant on, but in this case, who funds their campaigns. So I'm just wondering if the kind of fundraising aspect of the job shift pretty markedly before and after McCain-Feingold. So now you've got me, I'd have to go back and look and see how I even voted on that bill. But after you've <laughs> taken, you know, after more than a decade since I was there and about 10,000 votes, I probably can be forgiven for that. But though I would say a couple of things about, and I, I of course, as being in a swing district that I never caught a break. I had tough elections every time. I was also, you know, pretty good at fundraising. Federal fundraising is far more restrictive than what happens in most states and certainly at the local level. And the federal rules for candidates means that you have to have a very broad base of support and thousands of smaller donors. The thing that I worry about now in our campaign finance system is not the candidates themselves, but that in many respects, campaigns are completely outside of the control or even influence of the candidates because independent expenditure is now dominating what's seen on television and heard on radio and on the internet for campaigns for office. And I, I think that makes people less accountable. And as a candidate or a former candidate, that would really bother me because the message is no longer in your control. And often whether you're elected or not depends on how high a priority particular interest groups put on your success or defeat. And you, you not only can't, it's forbidden for there to be any coordination at all with particular special interest groups. I'd like to return to the previous point we were talking about, about the media and people's information sources. Now, there is this kind of nostalgic view, and to be honest, I kind of share it instinctively, actually, that things were simpler earlier when we had a more limited set of information sources when everyone watched the same news or when everyone read the same newspapers and things. And you could say that as the proliferation of information and news sources has proceeded, there has been this increasing segmentation and people pick the views that they they agree with and they get ever more radicalized in those views. But if you allow me to play devil's advocate for a second, was there not also an elitism in the previous regime of information and news and in that people didn't get various sources of news, they couldn't get different perspectives on the same question, they were just kind of given a pre-processed consensus view of the news and that that could potentially have in some ways undermined democratic debate? I suppose you can make that argument. What I worry about is declining ability to listen carefully to others' points of view. And almost, and it's interesting to me, particularly online. Yeah, sorry, President Wilson. My question was, um, I was I was kind of playing devil's advocate and asking whether maybe there, we have gained something from the proliferation of news and information sources, even though potentially it has also led to more polarization. It leads people to be able to get different perspectives and points of view. I think that's true. I think you have a good point. But I also think that as citizens, one of the things we don't always do well is seek out and seek to understand the different points of view. And it's something particularly at universities, I think we have a responsibility to do is 
to engage our students in the ability to come to a discussion with humility, that with the idea that perhaps I may be wrong. And that ability to listen with care, not listen to refute, but listen to understand is an important skill in any self-governing republic. That's one of the things I regret most about the nature of discussion, particularly through social media. People will say things on social media that they would never say to you standing on a street corner or over a cup of coffee or even in a town hall. You mentioned uh, President Wilson universities, and I know we're going to talk at length about your kind of vision for university and, and what you're doing at UTEP. But your first job in the university setting, as I understand, was president of the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. What uh, led to that opportunity? I lost the race for the United States Senate in New Mexico in 2012, and I, but I benefited from having a not so great economy around me. I had a fantastic group of interns. And I had had a lot of interns over the years as a member of Congress. And one of my interns, you know, I was helping them get through the losing. And I, of course, I had, you know, much more mature and had lost other things in life and didn't really think of them as failures. They were just different, you know, changes in life. So I'm just kind of helping these young people who are very passionate to, about the race kind of get through that. And one of them, his name was Evan. And he said to me, he said, you know, Dr. Wilson, you're really good with students. You should be a college president. And he said, and Texas Tech is doing a president search, and I think you should apply. <laughs> I, said, I said, Evan, you know, I don't think Texas Tech is looking for me. But I thought about it a little more. And I had come close once before a recruiter had tried to encourage me to apply for a college presidency before. And I, and I thought, you know, you know that maybe that's what I should do. How do you find the difference between being a legislator one among many in drafting and passing legislation compared to some of these more executive type roles that you've had. I think that's interesting that you've held both at a very high level. And I'd be interested in hearing you muse a little bit on the on the pluses and minuses of each. Is it frustrating to be one legislator among many versus someone that has potentially more agency as the executive of an organization, or is it not quite as simple as that? It's a very good observation. They are very different. And I think I'm more of an administrative or maybe executive personality. I like to get things done. And there were times where it was very frustrating in the Congress because nothing happens quickly. That's intentional. Our government wasn't set up to be efficient. It was set up to protect us from tyranny. I found tremendous satisfaction as a member of Congress in casework in untangling red tape that people found themselves in with the federal government. And then I, I found satisfaction in committee work, but it, I accepted that it would take a very long time to get meaningful legislation passed. Is there any one issue that you wish that you'd been able to pass a piece of legislation in Washington while you were there, that there was maybe a near miss or um, something that you feel that you were not able to address due to being one legislator among many, do you have any regrets about your time in, in Washington? Oh, there are, I mean, uh, there are a lot of things that we started that didn't get done. And I'll probably die with a to-do list on my refrigerator. It doesn't matter what role I'm in. I led a task force on Medicaid reform as one example. That really came 
from my work at Children, Youth and Families, where we were responsible for children's mental health and we had managed care for people on Medicaid in the state of New Mexico. And, and I saw some problems and gaps in the systems and inefficiencies. And, and I believed that the safety net was really important, but I wasn't sure that the system was designed well to improve the health status of those who depend on it. And I don't think we came close to addressing some of the issues in healthcare for those who are underserved. But that's only one example. I mean, I could give you a dozen of everything from research and development tax credits to, to um, education issues. So yeah, there will always remain things undone. I hope you've at least crossed them off the to-do list on the fridge now, you know, <laughs> don't keep a really long one from stuff from 20 years ago. Just keep like a rolling tally. Of it's things. a rolling list. Yeah. It's yeah, a rolling yeah. List. I would yeah. worry. Otherwise it would be really long, <laughs> hang down on the floor, get dirty. No, there's always opportunities to do things. And I, I always have more things that I want to do that I can possibly accomplish. So you were called out of university, the first presidency you held, to return to the federal government to serve as Secretary of the Air Force. So I wanted to ask you about a phrase you used in a number of interviews that I saw was that you were focused on restoring the readiness of the Air Force. And so I, I wonder if you could just speak a bit about that and in what ways do you think the Air Force needs to be updated or improved? Mm -hmm. When you go through confirmation, which... I don't recommend for anybody, by the way, um, avoid that if you possibly can. But when you are confirmed by the United States Senate, there's a lot of preparation that goes into that and, you know, huge notebooks of briefing materials and reading and so on so that you, you try not to shame your family by answering some question in a stupid way. And so one of the briefings, a big section of the briefing that I looked at was on readiness. And as a young lieutenant stationed at RAF Mildenhall, in the 1980s, I can remember those those readiness briefings. Every you know, like every Friday morning, when you know us idiot lieutenants were sitting over by the wall, and the general was getting his briefing on Third Air Force readiness status and and you know, maintenance issues or whatever, and they're putting the slides up on the screen. And when I looked at the readiness slide for the United States Air Force in 2019, I actually thought they had gotten the labels reversed because I knew that any unit that had gotten below 80% readiness in 3rd Air Force during the Cold War, the commander would be changed. And yet our readiness had declined substantially. And, and readiness is a mixture of the availability of equipment, the availability of spare parts, uh, the training of people, the number of people that you have. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. But 28 years of continuous combat operations had eroded the readiness of the, the force to meet any fight, any time. It was the frog in the water problem. It had changed gradually over time, but it was a real concern. And the chief of staff and I, Dave Goldfein, and I knew that we had to, we had to focus on this. Um, and Secretary Mattis made it very clear that we needed to as well. So it was America's, I guess you're saying, kind of perpetual war that had led to the decline of the readiness. It was. That in the Air Force was far too small for what the nation was asking it to do. You know, there would have been deep cuts in the military in the, you know, 2008, 2011, or 12 or 13 timeframe. And the Air Force had had to cut force structure, kind of betting on that the world would be safer. And then ISIS declared its caliphate in Iraq and Syria 
and the Air Force, you know, surged to the fight. And the fight against ISIS was largely indigenous forces supported by exquisite intelligence and American air power. That air power came from an air force that was far too small for everything that it was being asked to do. And what happens when you're flying combat air patrols, supporting a counterinsurgency fight, it was very effective, but it means you're not training for other things. And it means that we had a significant shortage of pilots. Uh, the force structure there for maintainers was far too small. They were far too inexperienced. So there were a lot of factors that went into it. But really, it was we were driving this force that was too small, too hard for too long. You mentioned that you were stationed, uh, it sounded like a, a British RAF base that you were stationed at during the Cold War. And so you obviously must have been following quite closely the readiness of the Soviet and Soviet allied forces during that time. Have you been surprised at the performance or underperformance of the Russian Air Force during this conflict in the Ukraine, perhaps especially as compared to their performance over Syria, where I know that they have enjoyed at least some success and there seems to be a kind of incongruence with their performance in Ukraine. Have Have you been surprised at developments over there? I am. I, 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 so I did serve. I served in NATO, both at RAF Milden Hall, which was a, you know, all the RAF bases kept, even if they were entirely U.S. forces there, they, they were RAF bases, our basing rights. But uh, I have been somewhat surprised by it. I think a, a lot of people were. And particularly under Putin, there was this effort to kind of put money into the restoration of Russian armed forces beyond just their nuclear forces, it appears that a lot of it may have been siphoned away in corruption, that the force wasn't trained or maintained or properly led. Weak senior non-commissioned officer corps has been pretty remarkable, obviously completely devastating for Ukraine. And strategically, this is probably the biggest mistake that Putin has made in his 22 years in power. Everything he wanted to avoid strategically, he has accomplished through his action in Ukraine. Unification of NATO. Finland and Sweden. Finland and Sweden joining NATO. The Germans passing a constitutional amendment to increase their defense spending and destroying his own economy for the medium and long term. It's just uh, truly remarkable how he has sabotaged everything he wanted to achieve. Is this in some ways an unexpected windfall for the relative readiness of the United States Air Force and military because the Russians have been exposed as so uh, ineffectual, thereby reducing the relative threat or burden that they place on American defense efforts? Well, threat drives strategy. Strategy should drive force posture and concepts of operation. If you look at the global threats, the threat that we had positioned ourselves for for the last 30 years, or rather 20 years, was really focused on the Middle East and counterinsurgency operations, where we controlled the rheostat of time and had complete air superiority. Even in my time in the Air Force, we knew that the threat was changing and shifting more to the rise of China. So the pacing threat is not Russia it is China. So I don't think we should be complacent about incompetence and ineffectiveness of the Russian military. President Wilson, one of the other defining 
aspects of your time as Secretary of the Air Force was this debate over the Space Force. You were working hard to try to keep the Space Force as part of the Air Force. My understanding is the Trump administration wanted to create a separate branch uh, and that the Biden administration has continued along the path. The Trump administration is establishing it as a separate branch. Can you just talk about the significance of that debate and, and why you felt it was important to keep the Space Force within the scope or within the purview of the Air Force? Just as a clarification, the, the Space Force is still part of the Air Force. There is one service secretary that is over both air and space, and they, were, so they remain integrated. And that's, I think that's important. One of my concerns, so I focused a lot on space capabilities. And I mean, America is still the best in the world at space. Our adversaries know it, and they are seeking to develop the ability to deny us the use of space in crisis or in war. That development of a threat was not responded to, in my view, fast enough because, you know, we built these exquisite glass houses in an era before stone. So one of the things that I did when I was there was both lead the development of strategies for a contested domain in space and then the capabilities in the budget to help to shift towards a threat-based environment. I was much more focused on capabilities and strategy as opposed to organizational structure. One of the things that I worry about with the Space Force politically in Washington, that it is very small and hence quite vulnerable in budget battles, both in the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill. The Space Force for people in uniform is about 6,000 people. So it's about half total, if you look at civilians as well, it may be total half the size of the Coast Guard. Long term, I worry about that. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm glad it's under a single service secretary and remains integrated in that way. Otherwise, it would probably get crushed. What is the significance for, I mean, I imagine a lot of listeners would wonder, what is happening in space? And how is this an area where there's contestation and, and rivalry between us and China? What is the kind of long term or even short term, I guess, significance of this kind of competition that's happening in space for Americans? Sure. So what do we do in space? So obviously, I'm not talking about NASA. I'm talking about the, the military use of space. The military operates about 70 satellites. Now, they're everything from the size of a bread box or a microwave to the size of a school bus. So what do they do? Of those 70, about 35, I think, currently, are navigation. So it's GPS. So the, the blue dot on your phone does not come from the cell phone company. It comes from satellites in space and a very weak radio signal. And if you can see three of those satellites from where you're sitting right now, your phone can do the math and triangulate where you are to within a few, few yards on the surface of the Earth. It's pretty amazing technology. So navigation is one. Communications is another. Intelligence gathering. So staring at the earth. We've all seen you know, overhead imagery, both from companies like Maxar, but also from government satellites to look at what's happening on the earth. So intelligence collection and then warning. So when North Korea launches an intercontinental ballistic missile, that gives off a very hot signature or rocket. And we have satellites that stare at the earth looking for that infrared signature to immediately warn that there has been a missile launch and then help to do the calculations for where those missiles are going. So 
That's what those satellites do. In 2007, I think it was, China launched a a missile and destroyed one of its own dead weather satellites. That's another thing we do from space is weather. Scattered about 3,000 pieces of debris. But they demonstrated the ability to destroy a satellite on orbit. The Russians just did some similar kinds of things. Probably two years ago now, the uh, head of the Space Force revealed and called public attention to a Russian satellite with an arm on it that went up and orbited another Russian satellite and then discharged an object. So satellites are really fragile things and uh, you don't need a rocket to destroy them. You can go up there and bump into them and break them. It's contested and if you lose communications, if you lose the ability to navigate, you don't just lose Yelp, you lose some pretty significant military capability. I'd like to return now to your current career trajectory and to the institution that you're leading at the moment. Why don't you tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about the institution you lead right now? I'm the president of the University of Texas at El Paso, which is uh, located at the westernmost tip of Texas, where three states and two countries come together along the Rio Grande. So my, my office is a quarter of a mile from the U.S.-Mexico border. We have 24,000 students, or actually more than that now. When it comes to research, we're in the top 5% of universities nationally, but we are also 94% minority, and we are the only open access top-tier research university in the country. So we have this deep public mission to increase access to excellent higher education. It's a wonderful place to be, and it's It's only a couple hours away from Hatch Green Chili, which is a really good thing. (laughs) How are you, uh, as president, looking to balance the kind of open access university structure you described with competing for rankings and all these other things that university presidents have to to worry about, I think, in many ways to the detriment of, of, of the student body sometimes. But how do you think about balancing those kind of competing priorities of being you know, reputable with students with high entering credentials versus remaining open access and providing a high quality education? UTEP rejects, we're not going to chase the wrong rabbit. I think one of the great tragedies of American higher education in the last 30 years has been rankings like US News and World Report that say if we build a, you know, an ivory tower on top of a pedestal and put a fence around it, we must be great. That to me is a tragedy. And Fewer than 1% of American young people are educated at these places that say, well, we're exclusive. So if we didn't let you in, we must be great. I think that's a myth. It's a marketing myth. And we refuse to take part of it. We will be judged by the success of our graduates, not by whom we refuse to serve. And I think if more of higher education stopped chasing the wrong thing, higher education would be more respected. In fact, I I think that... um, UTEP and ASU and the universities like it, what most of Americans would like higher education to be about. There's a debate going on at the moment, once again, about forgiving student debt in the United States. And there are a significant number of individuals in this country who hold large amounts of student debt and may or may may even not have even completed their degrees. Do you think there's a crisis around the cost of higher education? And how do you try and keep the cost of higher education 
at affordable levels for American families? I The whole question of forgiving student debt, if you look at who holds that debt, it tends to concentrate in the top 20% of those with wealth, overwhelmingly socioeconomically well-off with degrees. Some of them, a large percentage of it is for graduate school, disproportionately Anglo. So why is it that we should give a break to the upper socioeconomic class at the expense of everybody else? So I have a real problem with that. Now, I also think um, that we need to keep college affordable. There's a number of ways to do that, but one of them, I think one of the other myths on public higher education, when you look at, you know, well, the cost has gone up, the fees, tuition and fees have gone up. But if you overlay that with the decline in state funding on higher education over the last 30 years, it's significant. So the cost is not going up as fast. What's changing is who's paying for it. It's less of a public good and more of a private benefit. UTEP has done very well at keeping tuition and fees low. You know, we don't have a 24-hour smoothie bar. <laughs> we provide excellent higher education in a very engaged way, and we do it at a, at a very reasonable price, which gets back to, you know, I think more of higher education. If more of higher education was a little more like UTEP, this would not be as much of an issue as it is. Most of the really high-priced colleges are private universities. And they can charge what they want, but um, that's not where most of American students are being educated. I assume there's some sort of a board of regents or board of governors of the university system. When you submit to them for tuition increases, what proportion of that increase is going to go to faculty, libraries, things that are directly related to the academic endeavor of the students in the school and what proportion of that would go to administration, sports facilities, other things that are perhaps at least by many viewed as sort of extraneous or parallel to the core mission of education? So at least in Texas, we're not allowed to use state funds for athletics and housing and cafeteria expenses and so on have to stand on their own. So we fundraise for athletics, although you know, athletics is the front porch of the university and is usually how our university is, is known by anyone outside of our hometown. But so those have to be separate. And we have some pretty strict rules on that. We call them auxiliary expenses. But uh, tuition and fees are pretty much very directly tied to instruction and running the university. As I have to tell faculty members, look, you know, we've got to keep the lights on. We've got to make that sure the plumbing works and the roof over your head. And, you know, you've got a computer on your desk. And so all of those things cost. They are not direct instruction, but they are what it costs to run a university. Another big move that's happened in American higher education over the last couple of decades is a large increase in the number of non-tenure track, non-permanent instructional faculty do you see that as a problem or a concern? And would you advise a young person for or against becoming a professor these days, investing all that time to get a PhD? First of all, a lot of people get PhDs who don't intend to go into higher education. And I th- think that's absolutely fine. A lot of our PhDs, even in, in particularly in science and engineering, but also social work, occupational therapy, physical therapy, nurse practitioners, they don't go into higher education. They serve in different ways or go into business. So that doesn't bother me at all. If someone aspires to advance knowledge and that's what really is their passion, 
higher education and research universities are one way that is done in America and can be tremendously satisfying. That is partnered with developing the next generation. So it's teaching and research. And at great universities, they go hand in hand. One of the things that makes things work here at UTEP, you know, our freshman to sophomore retention rates are higher than the average selective university, even though we're open access. And we have a real focus on high impact practices for first generation college students. And one of them is undergraduate research. Another is employment on campus. And that's both because you get a job that's not, it doesn't require you to drive across town and get back for your next class, but it's also because you're then surrounded by people who have degrees, who care about yours. It's actually one of the things that I think a lot of our faculty would tell you is tremendously satisfying is their engagement with undergraduates and their development and in their engagement directly in advancing knowledge. Well, we want to be sensitive to your time. So let me ask uh, the question we ask of all our guests at the end, which is whether you have a, a book or an essay or a podcast or a documentary or anything that you would recommend to the listeners on the themes of um, either civil discourse or civic participation or, in your case, higher education or leadership. And I also I want to add a second question, which is, do you still fly? Let me answer the second one first. Yes, I do fly. I have a little Cessna 152, which is out at the airport about 20 minutes from here. And uh, the weather's good. I'm going to go on a long cross country this weekend. So it's a lovely place to fly in the Southwest. Books or podcasts. There's a whole variety that I listen to. It's not so much in civics and leadership, but I think it is a good podcast that shapes my thinking sometimes. It's by Michael Morell, and it's called Intelligence Matters. And there are very few current things on intelligence. He was former acting director of the CIA and came up through the analytical core in intelligence. And I think it's one of the best podcasts on uh, current issues from an intelligence perspective. And his guests are just wonderful. But on the book side of things, it's not so much on leadership, but one, I guess in some ways it is because it's, I think, reading of history is really also a study in leadership. And this one is, uh, I loved it in part, you don't, it doesn't matter that you know the story. Uh, Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile, about Churchill's first year as prime minister during the battle for Britain is just fantastic. And he drew on new sources, including the diaries of Churchill's families, but his daughter in particular. And it's just a wonderful read. And he's such a great writer, but it's it's such a story in personal leadership at an incredibly trying time. And so the splendid in the vile. Wonderful. I look forward to checking both of those out. Thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're really appreciated. Yeah, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure.